0: We have a lot of practice in making snap judgments, in looking on the outward appearance and forming an opinion of someone. It doesn't take us long to size someone up. Clothing, hairstyle, age, accent, posture, expression, just a little exposure to any of these, and we've got people pretty well pegged. It's the external stuff on which we base our opinion, and it's the external stuff on which we often base our action. People, like us, look on the outward appearance. That tendency got Israel's monarchy off on the wrong foot. You might recall call the story of Israel's first king, Saul. He proved to be totally unsuited to the throne. He was moody, impetuous, given to fits of anger and rage. He was jealous and untrustworthy and unteachable and more. But the people had clamored for a king. Samuel the prophet was getting old and questions of succession arose. Who would rule in the land when Samuel was gone? And They looked around them and they saw the other nations and they wanted to be like them they wanted a king so God reluctantly allowed them to have a king and Saul's chief qualification seems to have been that he stood head and shoulders over the other men of Israel he looked kingly he looked like a king should they wanted a king who looked the part much the same way we like our presidents to look presidential they wanted their king to look kingly Uh, These days, we would simply make Saul the center on our basketball team and sign him to a shoe deal, but in those days, they made him king because he stood out literally above the rest. Uh, Last Sunday, under Pastor Dave's leadership, we looked at the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, and we saw there Saul's disobedience, which eventuated in the forfeiture of his kingdom finally God had had enough and God removed his spirit from Saul. He rejected Saul as king over Israel and Samuel the old prophet was told to fill his horn with oil to get ready to anoint the next king of Israel, a man of God's choosing. And that king was to be found among the sons of Jesse, who was a man apparently of some means in a little, little town called Bethlehem. And so the day for anointing comes, and one by one, the sons of Jesse are paraded before the old prophet, Eliab and Abinadab and Shab- Shammah, it's easy for me to say I know All the seven sons of Jesse are paraded before the old prophet. And more than once, Samuel thought he was looking at the next king of Israel. He just about lifted his horn of oil, but each time God held him back, and finally there were no sons left. And Samuel was confused. He asked Jesse, Is this it? Are all your sons here? And Jesse replied, They're all here, except the youngest, who's tending the sheep. The Hebrew word that's translated the youngest is hagaton, and it has an edge to it. Hagaton means more than the youngest. It's something like baby brother or the kid or the little brother. It's not used always, affectionately but used often dismissively and Jesse says there's one left but he's just the kid he's back there where he belongs taking care of the sheep the implication is that all the potential candidates are gathered there before Jesse all who might be king and that the youngest, David, was by no stretch of the imagination going to feel the drip of that anointing oil that day. He was where he belonged. He was taking care of the sheep. But David, as you know, is summoned from the pasture, and he's brought before Samuel, who knew him in that moment as the one God had chosen And Samuel takes that oil and pours it over David's head, designating him as the next king of Israel. Now that reversal of expectations is something that we've encountered more than once as we have read the Bible together, especially as we have looked at these characters over the last few months from the Old Testament. God seems to always be doing the unexpected with people, He frequently uses the least to make the most impact. He uses ordinary people you wouldn't expect to have any part in God's plans to accomplish the most extraordinary things. So you have a baby boy abandoned by his mother to the bulrushes of the Nile River who is taken by Pharaoh's daughter and raised with Pharaoh's family, who grows up to murder an Egyptian, who flees to the land of Midian, and then he is the one who's called back to Egypt to lead the people of God out to the land that God had given them. And you have the the schemer who tricks his father and receives the blessing, Jacob. You have a little brother who is sold into slavery by his older brothers, who rises to be the top governmental official in Egypt and to save his entire clan and indeed the line of Jesus in a time of famine, Joseph. And now you have David, the least of Jesse's sons, So no part of the family that he isn't invited to Samuel's sacrifice when Samuel makes that trip to Bethlehem. But he's left home to care for the flocks. And he's the one who's chosen to be king of Israel. Why David, we might ask. And if we are not careful, we will make the Saul mistake We'll focus on verse 12 where it says he was ruddy. He had a reddish complexion or maybe red hair with a fine appearance and handsome features. And later in the same chapter in verse 18, David is described as being talented. He played the lyre. He was a brave man. He was a warrior who speaks well, a fine-looking man. Now that's the resume we would look at if we were choosing but God saw something more God doesn't simply concur with people's judgments of others and self God looks deeper God goes deeper in his scrutiny and when he looked at David as when he looks at us he is able to look to the inner person he is able to look to the heart And when he looked at David, he saw what he liked, and so he chose David to be the next king when he looked at David's heart. Now, heart for us is the center of our emotions. We say we love with our hearts, but heart biblically is not so much the seat of emotions as it is the center of one's will. It is the center of volition. It is what we volunteer with. It is the place where we sort out all the desires and appetites and ambitions and motivations of our lives. It's where we make decisions. You might call it the organ of availability. It's where we make ourselves available, where we find ourselves either to be willing or unwilling. And David is called a man after God's own heart. You see, God is at the center of David's decision-making even then. Philip Keller wrote, God does not measure character by charisma. He does not defer to human values. God's chief criterion for selecting special servants for mighty purposes is, are you willing? Are you willing to do my will? That's the acid test. Despite all of an individual's other failings, Keller writes, if above all else, his one consuming desire is to be a man after God's own heart, he will be lifted above the turmoil of his times in great honor and be of great service to God. So when God looked at David's heart, he saw the willingness to do what God wanted. He also, no doubt, saw evidence of humble service already accomplished. Psalm 78 writes of David and God's choosing It says, God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pen. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. That's Psalm 78, verses 20 and 22. David's preparation for being king of Israel started out with tending Jesse's sheep. Now, it doesn't get much more humble than tending sheep. Herding sheep is not a pleasant job. But there, David no doubt learned patience and responsibility and resourcefulness and how to live a quiet life. He learned how to spend long hours by himself in solitude reflecting on God and God's way and God's will. The Lord also saw in David teachability. David wasn't ready yet to be king of Israel. It's some years, some 20 years before his anointing takes effect, so to speak, and he is crowned king of Israel. David does not get off his knees immediately and run right to the palace, still dripping with the oil of Samuel's anointing to take up the throne. David did not know all he would need to know to rule over that kingdom, to settle disputes between the fractious tribes and clans of Israel and Judah to administer the kingdom, to govern in God's place. But David was willing, apparently, to learn. And God also saw spiritual openness in David. And by that term, spiritual openness, I mean an openness to the presence of God's Spirit and an openness to the power of God's Spirit. Verse 13 says, From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now, remembering that David was a person and not a puppet, that phrase indicates much of the character of this man. He saw himself as a vessel as an instrument, as a tool in God's hand. Uh, In the next chapter, in the, the killing of Goliath, what is suggested here becomes very explicit. It's the fact that God is at work in him that is the secret of his effectiveness and the secret of his success and power. That's what God saw when he looked at David's heart. The applications, I think, are clear. There are two. First, this passage asks us, how do you look at other people? How quick are you to assess them? How quick are you to assign potential or not to them? Do you, do you see the projected persona, or do you see the real person? Do you see the package Or the image? Or do you see the person, the real person? The people that God has given to us are to be viewed as God views them. Our children, our youth, our friends in the church, our friends at work and in our neighborhood, they are to be viewed as God views them. Remember, David was just a young man, probably a teenager when he was anointed. Aren't you glad that someone saw some potential in you? Somebody saw that you perhaps could be called by God to accomplish some great things. We are called by the example that God gives us here of himself to look beyond the external things in the way that we value people, to look beyond the external things to the interior life it's easy to reject something because of its package several years ago now I had the task of cleaning out my mother's attic and when I went to that lake home in Minnesota I found all kinds of things in that attic some of them were wrapped there were many parcels packages wrapped in newspaper or brown paper and tied up with string and stuck back in the eaves of this uh, attic. And I found, as I was sorting through my mother's things, that I had to be very careful that uh, that parcel wrapped in yellowed newspaper from 1958, tied up with baling twine, just might be something of value, something valuable, something useful, Something by all means to be saved. You can't always tell by looking at a package what's inside. So God calls us to look beyond the exterior to the interior life as we value people. The second application is more personal than that, even. It is what does God see when He looks at you? We know or have a good idea of what God saw when he looked at David, but what does God see when he looks at your heart? And what he sees will determine your usefulness in the great things that he wants to do through you. Does he see in you a heart committed to doing his will? And that is not so much the absence of wrestling trying to decide what to do it's not that absence so much as it is the willingness to eventually yield to god's will to submit to come around eventually to doing what god wants you to do does god see that in your commitment to doing his will and secondly does god see in you a pattern of humble service it's the little things that we engage in in which we prove ourselves capable of doing the bigger things. Faithful servants, in that story that Jesus told, heard, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. You see, it's that willingness to do the little task and to see those little tasks as possibly preparation for the bigger tasks that await. It is the willingness to serve unnoticed, the willingness to serve unappreciated even. I think this has particular importance for Nova Community Church right now. There is so much that needs to be done. We are moving. We're moving in the right direction. We're reaching out with the good news, with the grace of Jesus Christ into our community, but there still remains so much to be done? Are you willing to be engaged in that humble service? We're not looking for platform people. This platform is crowded. (laughs) We are looking for people who humbly serve, taking a little task and regularly and faithfully fulfilling it. We're looking for people now. Humble people who are willing to be trained and willing to serve on a team, willing to work unnoticed, willing to do the seemingly unimportant but very essential things that need to be done in a congregation like ours. The success of this venture called NOVA doesn't depend on what you might think it depends on. It doesn't depend on our creativity. You know, if only we can come up with the great big idea and successfully execute it. But rather, it depends on humility, Finding those, finding a number of people who are fixed at this heart level, who are ready and willing to do what needs to be done, what God wants them to do. And this attitude of teachability. Do you know that God abandons the know-it-all? That's what Scripture said. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. God abandons the know-it-alls. He forsakes those who are self-sufficient. He doesn't use those who expend tremendous energy displaying their opinions or their perfect knowledge of what should be done and, and how it ought to be done. He looks for people who are conscious always of a growing edge in themselves, areas in which they are willing to listen and learn and grow willing to say, I don't know it all, I'm still learning, but there are vast areas of wisdom and practical knowledge outside my ken, but I'm willing, I'm willing, willing to learn and grow. And then lastly, when God looks at your heart, does he see that openness in your spirit to his spirit? That willingness to be consumed with the power and presence of God. All of us who are God's people have God's spirit, but I must say, some of us have stopped listening to Him a long time ago. We have relegated, we have relegated the spirit of God to some far-off, never-opened area of our lives. We don't need him, we think. So we don't listen for him, much less obey him. No need, no heed. No need, no heed. But God is looking for those who commune with him at the spirit level. His spirit to our spirits. Him speaking Him being allowed to speak clearly and loudly into your heart and mind and finding you to be willing and obedient. I find myself coming back again and again to an old song whenever we venture into topics and themes like this. Have your own way, Lord. Have your own way. You are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after your will while I am waiting, yielded, and still. Have your own way, Lord. Doesn't it often come down to that? Whose will is going to be done? Mine or his? You are the potter, I am the clay. Help me, God, to remember the roles and how often I tend to get them reversed viewing God as at my beck and call rather than me as his servant. Mold me and make me. God, find me malleable, moldable, not hard and brittle, but pliant and compliant in your hand, Lord, while I'm waiting, yielded, and still, still enough to listen, quiet, waiting and ready to do his will. May God grant that that characterizes me and each of you.